Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Today on Emotional Savvy, we're going to talk about something that's a little bit different. You might not have considered it before. We're going to talk about the intersection between quantum physics and cellular memory and things like that. And my guest is also an intuitive. So we're going to bring those two things together and talk about so much more. Stay tuned for my interview with Sherry Anshara, and you will find some very interesting things you may not have thought about yet. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. Welcome back. And if you are returning, I'm so delighted you found value here and you wanted to return. If you're a brand new listener, welcome. You found a place where we do as much as we can to bring you insightful, expert information. And you can always find past episodes at EmotionalSavvy.com. Today, I'm with my guest, Sherry Anshara, and we are going to be talking about so many things that have to do with conscious healing, cellular memory, and how all those things work into the way that you are in the world and what you can do if you'd like to make a few changes. So welcome to the program, Sherry. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Yes, I'm happy that you're here too. Sherry and I first met at the New Media Summit last September in 2019, and here we are finally connecting on air. So we're going to be talking about things. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sherry and what she'd like you to know. She's an international best-selling author, a speaker, a former radio host of Conscious Healing, and a contributing writer to national and international publications. She created the Anshara Method of Accelerated Healing and Abundance and helps with overall wellness. Sherry utilizes her experience and expertise as a medical intuitive and success coach as the foundation of her groundbreaking work with cellular memory, and that's what she calls the Anshara Method. So we're going to talk about a few things, and in the beginning, let me start with, how did you discover your intuitive abilities? Well, actually, I would say it started when I was very, very young, but it was not acceptable. So I just lived a normal, what I call duality, everyday life, the best that I could. But in 1991, I had an accident, Mm -hmm. and I was actually 15 feet underwater, upside down in the Connecticut River, in a a drunk person's car. It wasn't a Kennedy. Sorry about that. And and I ended up with a broken neck and a broken back and a very smashed head and a brain out of place, and they did not know my brain was out of place. And so you can imagine, Dr. Saylor, the... um, what was the prediction without being intuitive of my life? And I said, I'm sorry, that wouldn't work for me. 
<laughs> yes, isn't it interesting when we reject that kind of thing, what a difference that it makes? Like I have had situations where doctors have said to me, this is going to happen. And I'm saying, no, no, I don't think so. We're not having that. <laughs> and and uh, everything turns out differently. So how did you know for sure that you could say no to that next adventure that they were painting for you? Well, it was a challenge because I was a very, very successful businesswoman and broke glass ceilings. And actually, to make this funny, I would say I'm too short to break a glass ceiling. I, you know, I broke in the glass door. And so I had been married and divorced. So this is not a sadness because it's about relationships. But I was actually sued for alimony and started all over again. Now, this accident happened and everything that I knew Everything that I thought I knew and everything who I thought I was totally changed. And so in that experience, with all these dire forecasts for me, I thought, well, you know, it probably would have been better if I just died. And I thought, well, I didn't. So there has to be a reason. And so how I became connected or thought of the word cellular memory in 1991, because as you know, no one even knew what I was talking about. I just looked at my body in a different way from the inside out instead of the outside in. And I said, well, if you cut your finger, whether you put an antibiotic, your body heals. So what's the difference between the cell on my finger than the cell in my back or the cell in my bones or the cell in my tissues? They all have an intelligence. And that's when I came up with the word cellular memory and if it hadn't been for the transplants years later. And that's when the doctors started calling me. They said, I believe you're onto something. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. We were kind of in the similar place at a similar time. In 1989, I was taken out of a vehicle with the jaws of life with two collapsed lungs. And uh, I, at that time, I was working with people with life-threatening illness and their family a lot. And so everybody in the ambulance in the hospital knew me. And so when I was in finally taken out of the car and when when we looked at the car, I went and looked at it when I got out of the hospital and the steering wheel was that deep in my seat. So no wonder it punctured my lungs. But I remember saying to this young ambulance worker, he was looking at me with such concern. And I said, if you hold my hand, I promise I won't die on the way to the hospital. And he said, okay. <laughs> and he did that. That's all he could do for me. I had an, you know, an oxygen mask, but he couldn't do anything else. And, and then when I got to the hospital and had two chest tubes, they said, what do you want? Because they knew I knew. And I said, put me in a corner and leave me be. I will heal and I'll be fine. And so I think understanding these things, because I was working in the similar field and working with clients, and I owned a retreat center at the time, helping people with their healing. And so I so understand what you're saying, but it's so interesting that that phrase came to you because it came into common parlance not that much longer, did it? No, it did not, but it came just so clear that I knew. And then I also recognized there was something else, that it was called cellular memorization. So memorization to me was when they said, well, this is going to be your life. This is all the things you can't do. And you're lucky to be alive. And I go, well, with that kind of diagnosis, I don't feel so lucky. And so to me, the memorization was, 
like a program that they were telling me. And I thought somewhere deep inside, I'm not buying this. I am not buying it. And though my life went tanked, it was terrible. I just knew inside that there was something much better for me that I was going to create, whether I was aware of it or not. Yes, and and pushing the envelope a bit there, you know, we're talking about physical healing at this moment, but, you know, physical healing is not all that physical, because even though people can do things to help us heal in our physical body, and thank heaven there are those people, a lot of our healing takes place from the inside out, and the understanding of cellular memory or cellular memorization is, uh, let me go back and remember exactly that, you cut yourself the body doesn't sit around going, I don't know, shall we heal today? Shall we do anything? I don't know, maybe in an hour. It doesn't do that. It immediately goes to healing. It immediately rushes things to the site and starts sealing it up. And when we can recognize that our body wants to go in a healthy direction and is willing to go in a healing direction and we accept that and trust that, then our journey is a whole lot different than ain't it awful the world's doing me wrong. <laughs> it is. And it, it takes you out of the self-victimization role that you can say, well, I got victimized by this or the circumstances it really takes you into your seat of power instead of be, being forced upon a concept or an idea or, or a belief system, whatever it is, is the memorization. And that's when I began to discern that there was something not compatible sometimes with that outside world, with my inside world. Well, you used a, a, phrase in our communication before the show that I think is important to introduce here because sometimes we get extremely emotionally involved in what's going on and the emotional aspect kind of has an energy that clouds our ability to think and so you use the term NEO which you say stands for a non-emotional observer. Why is that stance so important? Well in quantum physics in order to change something or witness a change, you must observe it, but non-emotionally. Like you can't, if you put a seed in the ground, it's going to come up. There's going to be a little green thing, what, whatever the plant is. And so you're really observing it. Yeah, you can water it or whatever, but if you don't, it will come up. And so what I noticed for myself, the more I observed myself first. That was the hard part. I have to actually tell you this. When I started observing, I was observing everybody else. Wow, that's a jerk or that's a great person or how could they be that stupid? Because there was a judgment going on there. I totally get it. But then it was like this light bulb or I always call it the iron skillet from outside wherever hit me over the head and said, no, wait a minute. Neo, not a you have to observe yourself. So even back then, and that, you know, 1991 and 92, and as I started to go, the more I observed my own behavior, the more I observed my own language, and I discovered that some of my language wasn't mine. It belonged to my mother, or it belonged to a teacher without judging them, but it wasn't my language. Mm -hmm. and, and the more I observed, then I observed how am I interacting in this experience or in this relationship? 
or in this conversation. And what came to me one day was wordology is your biology. And that's where that got coined. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Well, it is funny. And, and it's, it's so accurate as well. But, you know, I think that for people to understand what, what the concept of non-emotional observer is, first of all, maybe we could give them a clue as to how to get your emotions out of the way when you're being self-reflective, because it's very difficult sometimes to just see the facts. It is. And, and what I discovered is that in resonance or whatever, that when, if I was just processing my life through my left brain, I also noticed that it went to the male side manifest, manufacture, manipulation. This is not gender. And notice that in everybody. But the more that I began to observe, there was a difference between the emotional attachment and feeling it. Feeling it was that connection. But when I was being emotional, there was a disconnect. So I said this, and then you said that, and then they said that, and then we all said that, and it's going back and forth in that conversation. So I noticed that emotions seem to be the core sometimes of our issues and our tissues stuck in that computer brain, in that left computer brain. And I'm going, well, what happened to the right brain? That's your creative brain. Yes, but sometimes it's very difficult. So let's give people something that they could do maybe this is brand new to them and they they recognize that yeah they know something about self-awareness or self-reflection but maybe they're in a heightened state of emotionality maybe they've just received a diagnosis or a prognosis or something that has really set them off in a downward tailspin and we're giving them some ideas there's something you can do what would be the first thing to get to that place where they can actually just become a non-emotional observer of their life? Well, number one, when I'm working with someone and I've worked with stage four cancer, they got rid of it or depression or addiction or whatever because of that emotionality. But what you can do is start connecting. And some people are visual, some are auditory, more kinesthetic, but we all do visual in some way or the other. And so I will ask them to connect, only observing it, not emotional, but just observing it to that area of the body that's having challenges. And the reason I do this is I did this for me. So just as a quick caveat, people said, oh, did you see the light? And you came back and said you were going to heal people. I said, no, I didn't care about anybody. Honestly, I'm just telling you the truth. This was all about me. Never mind anybody else. No, I didn't have that vision. But what I did was have insight into my own self. That's a little bit, but not vision. So I asked them in their own normal, regular, intuitive, natural, innate ability of your insight is to connect to that area of the body. And I will ask them to describe to me, what does that look like? Whether it's cancer or whatever, what does it look like? And they will tell me a description that maybe it was dark or irritating or confining or a fear. And then the best part of that is we, we create a space, a room space or place, and they're not going to get connect, attached to it, but they're just going to observe it. And, you know, I'll say, well, how old are you really in there when this started? 
because when people come and they fill out my intake sheet and they say they've been diagnosed with this, this, and this, and my question to them is, when did it start? And it didn't start at diagnosis. So in this technique that I developed, remember it was for me first, and that it, it turned out to be very viable and easy, believe it or not, and non-threatening because it wasn't, I'm saying, well, how could you be this stupid or what, you know? So we didn't think about it. We just connected to it. And what is that cellular memory providing for you within your own body? Beautifully said. You know, now I want to just segue over. You know, I spent a lot of time in the New Thought community for a very long time. I first started over there in the 70s. Um, so what do you think when somebody looks at you askance and you have a diagnosis or you have a difficulty and somebody says, and how did you create that? I know. And what I say is that we don't even know that we're creating it because because there, there is a trauma that happened in, and I can give you a perfect example and we'll do, we'll use anxiety. Is that okay? Sure. So when I was 12 years old, I came home because your brain's not developed to your 25, but we don't know that. So I came home and my mother looked at my report card and she said, hmm, five A's and one B. Why did you get the B? So she wasn't wronging me. I got so frustrated about that. Geez, I must be stupid. But then I rebelled. I absolutely rebelled. And I got two B's the next card marking. And I was prouder than you can imagine. <laughs> but that set sort of an anxiety up. And so whenever I would get into a test mode and school or whatever, I would hear that voice in the back of my head wasn't mine. It was my mother's. Why did you get this, do this, say this? When I, and that set up that pattern. And I was 12. Before that, I was just having a good old time. You know, I understand that because we get that little voice that's happening in us that at our, our even the beginning of anxiety, it'll go, oh, what are you doing? You know, why are you doing that? And it's somebody else's voice. You know, sometimes <laughs> I'll be standing peeling potatoes at the kitchen sink and I'll hear my mother, who was a raving hijackal of the um, <clears throat> difficult variety, <laughs> and and she'll say, I don't work so that you can waste potatoes. You are, you know, you are not doing a fine enough job. And I'll, and now I go, you know, who asked you? But I remember when it was like, oh, you know, I'm not doing a good enough job. I can never do a good enough job. But, you know, to follow on in your story about school, I had that experience, you know, all A's and then I, I got to be. So I actually did the ultimate con. Now, if you're listening here, you may not want to uh, give kudos to the con, but what I said, I was going into medicine. I was going to be a medical doctor. So my parents did not really understand the whole <laughs> education system. So I told them, you know, it's okay. I can get into medical school with the grades that I have. And because I'm going to be so busy as a medical student, I'm going to have a lot of fun in high school. Don't you worry. <laughs> so I gave myself permission to get A's and B's and a C plus if I wanted to. And um, they got off my back because they wanted me to be a medical doctor, right, to make them look good. Yes. So <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's interesting what we create and what we learn. But it's that pattern interrupt that you're talking about, that that moment when you realize that, okay, that's a mother thing. That's the mother sitting on my, my shoulder talking about how closely to trim the potato peelings. Um, that's not me. And I reject that. 
Exactly. I bought these potatoes. I can cut them in half and throw them away if I want. <laughs> and so I am now in control of my own reality and my own decisions, and I live by my values. And that's a big journey for people, isn't it? It is a very big journey. But I, you know, and on the sort of the other side of it, I remember raising my hand as a little girl and said, well, if Columbus discovered America, how come there were people living here? And my history teacher was horrified because I was very little. And, and, but he gave me the best advice that in that head, his voice was the best advice. He said, Cherry, just memorize it and pass the test. And there was a light bulb that went on and said, you know what, this isn't going to work for me. But I couldn't tell him that. And at that time, we didn't have Google or Wikipedia, but we had this wonderful thing called a library. And so I made friends with the library and would start researching, though I didn't know I was researching. I was looking for answers. Mm-hmm. And how did that get created? Like, how did it get created without judging anybody? And I always wonder, when someone was stifled, what did we miss? What could they have invented? What could they have changed? What could they, you know, have brought to this planet in their life had they not been stifled? And this is not a judgment. I'm sticking to facts to Neil. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very good question because then you can extrapolate that to moving into a more therapeutic view, a more in- self-inquiry view to say, what am I stifling within myself? What what old scripts have I accepted? And I am thinking of them as directives that are actually just non-emotional observations that someone thought that was a good idea for me. And now I can rethink it and say, yeah, I think I won't have that one in my repertoire. And you know what can happen at any time. A couple of years ago, I was working with this gentleman in marketing. He was marketing. I'm the client. Now, I'm the client. And we were outside in California going through this. And he said something that totally triggered one of my mother's uh, expressions. You know how that goes? And so he said, well, we can only do this or we can do this, but you can't do them both. And so I remember my mother saying, if you do this, you have to sacrifice that. And that's what I heard. And my face changed. And he, he was like horrified. He knew he had said something. And then all of a sudden I burst out laughing and he was now confused. I totally confused. And I said, you know what? Thank you. We must've had the same mother because my mother's voice just popped up in my head that I can do this, but I can't do that. So I said, thank you for the reminder. And we both started laughing. (laughs) And then we found out we could do both just not at the same time. Right. And that's the thing, like an old binary choice does not have to be one that sticks with you for your entire lifetime. You know, my mother used to tell me this. um, My mother was a a toxic person and she was very unhappy and she'd had uh, things that had happened to her in her life that, of course, precipitated that, that view of the world. And she could never uh, validate me for anything except when I made her look good by playing the piano or singing or getting good grades. And at home, she would say this to me over and over and over. And she would say, it's a good thing you're smart, young lady, because you're fat and ugly. And so after she had passed, both my parents had passed, I was 
uh, I had a large yoga studio. I'm a yoga teacher. And I had all her photographs and my photographs and everything. And I was making photographic albums for my three kids. And at the end of it, I thought, you know, I'm going to go looking for fat and ugly. <laughs> now, I may be delusional, but I didn't find it. And then I had a good think about it. And I've said this on another episode, too. What my think was, was this. My mother, in order to have control in her life, needed to withhold any approval from me. That's one way of being. Like three days before she died, I had my hand on hers because, of course, she wouldn't hold my hand. I had my hand on hers and I said, you know, Mom, you've never told me that you love me. And she looked at me and she said, I know. Now, at that moment, when I'm sitting on my yoga room floor and I realize I can't find evidence of fat and ugly, I'm thinking that through. Now, what is this? And what I came to was this, Sherry. There, my mom was somebody that I told her straight out, if I met you at an event, I wouldn't suggest we have lunch. <laughs> you know, I did not like her. <laughs> but... I realized that as a child and going through these developmental things, and as you say, our brain grows till we're 25 or 30, hooked in my early life, of course, as it is in every child, is the approval of the parent. And she would withhold that. So I realized, because I didn't care for her or her stance in the world, she was a raving racist in, in addition to other things, <laughs> I realized that there was a part of me, such a big realization, there was a part of me that was still waiting for the approval of someone of whom I didn't approve. Yes, absolutely. And those kind of realizations, when we share those, like you're talking about how you thought differently than other people, how I worked this out, this becomes very important. So tell us about your current work. Well, the, my current work that I do, and I'm, I'm actually writing another book right now. It's taking me forever. But uh, I started exploring deeper into myself that even in the cells, that there had to be templates. You, you know, so here is a, a liver cell or a heart, you know, heart cells that make up the heart, that there had to be something even more. So I have worked with people that have had stage four cancer, were told they were going to die, and they're not. They're still alive. But I thought, could there be, and that's what I'm writing in this new book, could there be some sort of a template or a programming, even in our DNA, that we are not aware of? So I had my DNA tested not by 23andMe, and I'm, I'm not going to share the results of it, but it was quite shocking to my doctor. And so I know that this is years and years ago that has viable now. I went to a quantum physicist symposium. I was not a quantum physicist, obviously. And I had proposed to one of the physicists after the conference that if we get more conscious, not just aware, but fully conscious about something, could we change our DNA? And he said, that is so funny, Sherry. He said, I'm at a new conference now, and there was a Russian physicist, and this is almost 20 years ago, actually proposed the same thing. And so in some of my own personal testing that I've done through the medical model, not 23andMe, but the med model, that there has been a significant change. And so I do believe 
that we have a template or a formula within our body because we're told if your family has this or the grandparents are going back to Adam and Eve, whenever. I do believe that we can make changes or shifts clearly, no booga booga, no, but clearly in our own body. And so awareness is only a part, but the consciousness is the full Monty. And so now in my um, practice or whatever you would like to call it, I don't really like that word, but in what I'm doing with clients now is really assisting them to make even a deeper connection and the answers that pour out, I am just thrilled about it. And so they are too. It's giving them the explanation. And so one thing is in wordology is the word ion means cellular. So explanation, their body is giving them the explanation and their body physical from the inside out, their biology, even their anatomy has begun to change because we get the tests, <laughs> you know, get the blood tests, get whatever it is that we can do, your MRIs, your CT scans, and see what it is because they are getting into the coding of their intelligence. Oh, I love that. I love hearing that from you because just something I don't talk about very often, but according to the medical model, I should not be here by now. And uh, it seems it's working, you know. <laughs> it seems that um, our views of whether I should be here or not are completely different. And I know it's because I think differently. So I want everybody to know that you can get a great gift from Sherry Anshara. And you can get it. It's an ebook called Getting Your Answers in 10 Minutes. And she'll give you also a free 10-minute consultation. Now, that's valuable. And after what you've heard her say, I'm sure she's going to pique your interest. So go to her website, SherryAnshara.com. And that's S-H-E-R-R-Y-A-N-S-H-A-R-A.com. SherryAnshara.com. It's in the show notes. You can find that. You can find the link to her gift there as well. So thank you so much for being my guest and providing these insights, Sherry. And thank you so much. I feel, without getting silly here, but I feel like a connection because you don't get it. You have it. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> it does. Because people are saying, I got to get it, I got to get it. You don't, but you articulate it. You say it, you speak it, and you are being what it is that you know is the truth, which is different than true. It is the truth. So I thank you. I am so grateful to be a guest on your show and, fair, and feel very privileged in gratitude. Thank you. So remember that URL, sherryandshara.com, S-H-E-R-R-Y-A-N-S-H-A-R-A.com. Get your free gift. If you'd like to talk to me, you can come to transformingrelationship.com. And uh, if you're ready to talk to me directly, 
And I do offer a new client introductory session for only $97. You can go directly to it by going to beaclient.com. Go over and listen to my other podcasts, Save Your Sanity, Help for Toxic Relationships. You'll find it on my website and also my YouTube channel for FOR Relationship Help, H-E-L-P. So much for you that'll help you get some insights and get going on how you can change your life with more emotional savvy. So glad you were here with me. Until we're together again, treat yourself really well because you matter and you are precious. Take care. Welcome back. And if you are returning, I'm so delighted you found value here and you wanted to return. If you're a brand new listener, welcome. You found a place where we do as much as we can to bring you insightful, expert information. And you can always find past episodes at EmotionalSavvy.com. Today, I'm with my guest, Sherry Anshara, and we are going to be talking about so many things that have to do with conscious healing, cellular memory, and how all those things work into the way that you are in the world and what you can do if you'd like to make a few changes. So welcome to the program, Sherry. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Yes, I'm happy that you're here too. Sherry and I first met at the New Media Summit last September in 2019, and here we are finally connecting on air. So we're going to be talking about things. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sherry and what she'd like you to know. She's an international best-selling author, a speaker, a former radio host of Conscious Healing, and a contributing writer to national and international publications. She created the Anshara Method of Accelerated Healing and Abundance and helps with overall wellness. Sherry utilizes her experience and expertise as a medical intuitive and success coach as the foundation of her groundbreaking work with cellular memory, and that's what she calls the Anshara Method. So we're going to talk about a few things. And in the beginning, let me start with, how did you discover your intuitive abilities? Well, actually, I would say it started when I was very, very young, but it was not acceptable. So I just lived a normal, what I call duality, everyday life, the best that I could. But in 1991, I had an accident Mm -hmm. and I was actually 15 feet underwater, upside down in the Connecticut River in a a drunk person's car. It wasn't a Kennedy. Sorry about that. And and I ended up with a broken neck and a broken back and a very smashed head and a brain out of place. And they did not know my brain was out of place. And so you can imagine, Dr. Slayer, the... um, what was the prediction without being intuitive of my life? And I said, I'm sorry, that wouldn't work for me. (laughs) Yes. Isn't it interesting when we reject that kind of thing, what a difference that it makes? Like I have had situations where doctors have said to me, this is going to happen. And I'm saying, no, no, I don't think so. We're not having that. (laughs) And, And everything turns out differently. So how did you know for sure that you could say no to that next adventure that they were painting for you? Well, it was a challenge because I was a very, very successful businesswoman and broke glass ceilings. And actually, to make this funny, I would say I'm too short to break a glass ceiling. I, you know, I broke in the glass door. And so I had been married and divorced. So this is not a sadness because it's about relationships. 
but I was actually sued for alimony and started all over again. Now this accident happened and everything that I knew, everything that I thought I knew and everything who I thought I was totally changed. And so in that experience, with all these dire forecasts for me, I thought, well, you know, it probably would have been better if I just died. And I thought, well, I didn't. So there has to be a reason. And so how I became connected or thought of the word cellular memory in 1991, because as you know, no one even knew what I was talking about. I just looked at my body in a different way from the inside out instead of the outside in. And I said, well, if you cut your finger, whether you put an antibiotic, your body heals. So what's the difference between the cell on my finger than the cell in my back or the cell in my bones or the cell in my tissues? They all have an intelligence. And that's when I came up with the word cellular memory. And if it hadn't been for the transplants years later, and that's when the doctors started calling me, they said, I believe you're onto something. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. We were kind of in the similar place at a similar time. In 1989, I was taken out of a vehicle with the jaws of life with two collapsed lungs. And uh, at that time, I was working with people with life-threatening illness in their family a lot. And so everybody in the ambulance in the hospital knew me. And so when I was in, finally taken out of the car, and when when we looked at the car, I went and looked at it when I got out of the hospital, and the steering wheel was that deep in my seat. So no wonder it punctured my lungs. But I remember saying to this young ambulance worker, he was looking at me with such concern, and I said, if you hold my hand, I promise I won't die on the way to the hospital. And he said, okay. <laughs> and he did that. That's all he could do for me. I had an, you know, an oxygen mask, but he couldn't do anything else. And, and then when I got to the hospital and had two chest tubes, they said, what do you want? Because they knew I knew. And I said, put me in a corner and leave me be. I will heal and I'll be fine. And so I think understanding these things, because I was working in the similar field and working with clients, and I owned a retreat center at the time, helping people with their healing. And so I so understand what you're saying, but it's so interesting that that phrase came to you because it came into common parlance not that much longer, did it? No, it did not, but it came just so clear that I knew. And then I also recognized there was something else, that it was called cellular memorization. So memorization to me was when they said, well, this is going to be your life. This is all the things you can't do. And you're lucky to be alive. And I go, well, with that kind of diagnosis, I don't feel so lucky. And so to me, the memorization was like a program that they were telling me. And I thought somewhere deep inside, I'm not buying this. I am not buying it. And though my life went tanked, it was terrible. I just knew inside that there was something much better for me that I was going to create, whether I was aware of it or not. Yes, and and pushing the envelope a bit there, you know, we're talking about physical healing at this moment. But, you know, physical healing is not all that physical because even though people can do things to help us heal in our physical body, and thank heaven there are those people, a lot of our healing takes place from the inside out. And the understanding of cellular memory or cellular memorization is 
uh, let me go back and remember exactly that. You cut yourself. The body doesn't sit around going, I don't know, shall we heal today? Shall we do anything? I don't know, maybe in an hour. It doesn't do that. It immediately goes to healing. It immediately rushes things to the site and starts sealing it up. And when we can recognize that our body wants to go in a healthy direction and is willing to go in a healing direction and we accept that and trust that, then our journey is a whole lot different than ain't it awful the world's doing me wrong. (laughs) It is. And it it takes you out of the self-victimization role that you can say, well, I got victimized by this or the circumstances it really takes you into your seat of power instead of be, being forced upon a concept or an idea or, or a belief system, whatever it is, is the memorization. And that's when I began to discern that there was something not compatible sometimes with that outside world, with my inside world. Well, you used a, a phrase in our communication before the show that I think is important to introduce here because sometimes we get extremely emotionally involved in what's going on and the emotional aspect kind of has an energy that clouds our ability to think and so you use the term NEO which you say stands for a non-emotional observer. Why is that stance so important? Well in quantum physics in order to change something or witness a change, you must observe it, but non-emotionally. And like you can't, if you put a seed in the ground, it's going to come up. There's going to be a little green thing, what, whatever the plant is. And so you're really observing it. Yeah, you can water it or whatever, but if you don't, it will come up. And so what I noticed for myself, the more I observe myself first. That was the hard part. I have to actually tell you this. When I started observing, I was observing everybody else. Wow, that's a jerk or that's a great person or how could they be that stupid? Because there was a judgment going on there. I totally get it. But then it was like this light bulb or I always call it the iron skillet from outside wherever hit me over the head and said, no, wait a minute. Neo, not about, you have to observe yourself. So even back then in that, you know, 1991 and 92, and as I started to go, the more I observed my own behavior, the more I observed my own language, and I discovered that some of my language wasn't mine. It belonged to my mother or it belonged to a teacher without judging them, but it wasn't my language. Mm -hmm. And, And the more I observed, then I observed how am I interacting in this experience or in this relationship or in this conversation? And what came to me one day was wordology is your biology. And that's where that got going. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Well, it is funny. And, and it's, it's so accurate as well. But, you know, I think that for people to understand what, what, the concept of non-emotional observer is, first of all, maybe we could give them a clue as to how to get your emotions out of the way when you're being self-reflective, because it's very difficult sometimes to just see the facts. It is. And, and what I discovered is that in resonance or whatever, that when, if I was just processing my life through my left brain, I also noticed that it went to the male side 
manifest, manufacture, manipulation. This is not gender. And notice that in everybody. But the more that I began to observe, there was a difference between the emotional attachment and feeling it. Feeling it was that connection. But when I was being emotional, there was a disconnect. So I said this, and then you said that, and then they said that, and then we all said that, and it's going back and forth in that conversation. So I noticed that emotions seem to be the core sometimes of our issues and our tissues stuck in that computer brain, in that left computer brain. And I'm going, well, what happened to the right brain? That's your creative brain. Yes, but sometimes it's very difficult. So let's give people something that they could do. Maybe this is brand new to them and they they recognize that, yeah, they know something about self-awareness or self-reflection, but maybe they're in a heightened state of emotionality. Maybe they've just received a diagnosis or a prognosis or something that has really set them off in a downward tailspin. And we're giving them some ideas. There's something you can do. What would be the first thing to get to that place where they can actually just become a non-emotional observer of their life? Well, number one, when I'm working with someone and I've worked with stage four cancer, they got rid of it or depression or addiction or whatever because of that emotionality. But what you can do is start connecting. And some people are visual, some are auditory, more kinesthetic, but we all do visual in some way or the other. And so I will ask them to connect, only observing it, not emotional, but just observing it to that area of the body that's having challenges. And the reason I do this is I did this for me. So just as a quick caveat, people said, oh, did you see the light? And you came back and said you were going to heal people. I said, no, I didn't care about anybody. Honestly, I'm just telling you the truth. This was all about me. Never mind anybody else. No, I didn't have that vision. But what I did was have insight into my own self. That's a little bit uh, not vision. So I asked them in their own normal, regular, intuitive, natural, innate ability of your insight is to connect to that area of the body. And I will ask them to describe to me, what does that look like? Whether it's cancer or whatever, what does it look like? And they will tell me a description that maybe it was dark or irritating or confining or a fear. And then the best part of that is we, we create a space, a room space or place and they're not going to get connect, attached to it, but they're just going to observe it. And, you know, I'll say, well, how old are you really in there when this started? Because when people come and they fill out my intake sheet and they say they've been diagnosed with this, this, and this, and my question to them is, when did it start? And it didn't start at diagnosis. So in this technique that I developed, remember, it was for me first, and that it, it turned out to be very viable and easy, believe it or not, and non-threatening. Because it wasn't, I'm saying, well, how could you be this stupid or what, you know? So we didn't think about it. We just connected to it. And what is that cellular memory providing for you within your own body? 
beautifully said. You know, now I want to just segue over. You know, I spent a lot of time in the New Thought community for a very long time. I first started over there in the 70s. Um, So what do you think when somebody looks at you askance and you have a diagnosis or you have a difficulty and somebody says, and how did you create that? I know. And what I say is that we don't even know that we're creating it. Because there, because there is a trauma that happened in, and I can give you a perfect example, and we'll do, we'll use anxiety. Is that okay? Sure. So when I was 12 years old, I came home, because your brain's not developed to your 25, but we don't know that. So I came home, and my mother looked at my report card, and she said, hmm, five A's and one B. Why did you get the B? So she wasn't wronging me. I got so frustrated about that. Geez, I must be stupid. But then I rebelled. I absolutely rebelled. And I got two Bs the next card marking. And I was prouder than you can imagine. (laughs) But that set sort of an anxiety up. And so whenever I would get into a test mode and school or whatever, I would hear that voice in the back of my head wasn't mine. It was my mother's. Why did you get this, do this, say this? When I... And that set up that pattern. And I was 12. Before that, I was just having a good old time. You know, I understand that because we get that little voice that's happening in us that at our, our, even the beginning of anxiety, it'll go, oh, what are you doing? You know, why are you doing that? And it's somebody else's voice. You know, sometimes (laughs) I'll be standing peeling potatoes at the kitchen sink and I'll hear my mother, who was a raving hijackal of the um, difficult variety, (laughs) and, and she'll say, I don't work so that you can waste potatoes. You are, you know, you are not doing a fine enough job. And I'll, and now I go, you know, who asked you? But I remember when it was like, oh, you know, I'm not doing a good enough job. I can never do a good enough job. But, you know, to follow on in your story about school, I had that experience, you know, all A's and then I I got to be so I actually did the ultimate con. Now, if you're listening here, you may not want to uh, give kudos to the con. But what I said, I was going into medicine, I was going to be a medical doctor. So my parents did not really understand the whole <laughs> education system. So I told them, you know, it's okay. I can get into medical school with the grades that I have. And because I'm going to be so busy as a medical student, I'm going to have a lot of fun in high school. Don't you worry. <laughs> so I gave myself permission to get A's and B's and a C plus if I wanted to. And um, they got off my back because they wanted me to be a medical doctor, right? To make them look good. Yes. So <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's interesting what we create and what we learn, but it's that pattern interrupt that you're talking about that, that moment when you realize that, okay, that's a mother thing. That's the mother sitting on my my shoulder talking about how closely to trim the potato peelings. Um, That's not me. And I reject that. I bought these potatoes. I can cut them in half and throw them away if I want. (laughs) And so I am now in control of my own reality and my own decisions. And I live by my values. And that's a big journey for people, isn't it? It is a very big journey. But I, you know, and on the sort of the other side of it, I remember raising my hand as a little girl and said, well, if Columbus discovered America, how come they were people living here? And my history teacher was horrified because I was very little. And, and, but he gave me the best advice that in that 
head, his voice was the best advice. He said, Sherry, just memorize it and pass the test. And there was a light bulb that went on and said, you know what, this isn't going to work for me. But I couldn't tell him that. And at that time, we didn't have Google or Wikipedia, but we had this wonderful thing called a library. And so I made friends with the library and would start researching, though I didn't know I was researching. I was looking for answers. Mm-hmm. And how did that get created? Like, how did it get created without judging anybody? And I always wonder, when someone was stifled, what did we miss? What could they have invented? What could they have changed? What could they, you know, have brought to this planet in their life had they not been stifled? And this is not a judgment. I'm sticking to facts to Neil. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very good question because then you can extrapolate that to moving into a more therapeutic view, a more in self-inquiry view to say, what am I stifling within myself? What what old scripts have I accepted? And I'm thinking of them as directives that are actually just non-emotional observations that someone thought that was a good idea for me. And now I can rethink it and say, nah, I think I won't have that one in my repertoire. And you know what can happen at any time. A couple of years ago, I was working with this gentleman in marketing. He was marketing. I'm the client. I'm the client. And we were outside in California going through this. And he said something that totally triggered one of my mother's uh, expressions. You know how that goes? And so he said, well, we can only do this or we can do this, but you can't do them both. And so I remember my mother saying, if you do this, you have to sacrifice that. And that's what I heard. And my face changed. And he, he was like horrified. He knew he had said something. And then all of a sudden, I burst out laughing. And he was now confused. I totally confused. And I said, you know what? Thank you. We must have had the same mother because my mother's voice just popped up in my head that I can do this, but I can't do that. So I said, thank you for the reminder. And we both started laughing. <laughs> and then we found out we could do both just not at the same time. Right. And that's the thing, like an old binary choice does not have to be one that sticks with you for your entire lifetime. You know, my mother used to tell me this. um, My mother was a a toxic person and she was very unhappy and she'd had uh, things that had happened to her in her life that, of course, precipitated that, that view of the world. And she could never uh, validate me for anything except when I made her look good by playing the piano or singing or getting good grades. And at home, she would say this to me over and over and over. And she would say, it's a good thing you're smart, young lady, because you're fat and ugly. And so after she had passed, both my parents had passed, I was... Uh, I had a large yoga studio. I'm a yoga teacher. And I had all her photographs and my photographs and everything. And I was making photographic albums for my three kids. And at the end of it, I thought, you know, I'm going to go looking for fat and ugly. (laughs) Now, I may be delusional, but I didn't find it. And then I had a good think about it. And I've said this on another episode, too. What my think was, was this. My mother in order to have control in her life, needed to withhold any approval from me. That's one way of being. 
like three days before she died, I had my hand on hers because, of course, she wouldn't hold my hand. I had my hand on hers, and I said, you know, Mom, you've never told me that you love me. And she looked at me, and she said, I know. Now, at that moment, when I'm sitting on my yoga room floor and I realize I can't find evidence of fat and ugly, I'm thinking that through. Now, what is this? And what I came to was this, Sherry. There, my mom was somebody that I told her straight out, if I met you at an event, I wouldn't suggest we have lunch. You know, I did not like her. <laughs> but... I realized that as a child and going through these developmental things, and as you say, our brain grows till we're 25 or 30, hooked in my early life, of course, as it is in every child, is the approval of the parent. And she would withhold that. So I realized, because I didn't care for her or her stance in the world, she was a raving racist in, in addition to other things, <laughs> I realized that there was a part of me, such a big realization, there was a part of me that was still waiting for the approval of someone of whom I didn't approve. Yes, absolutely. And those kind of realizations, when we share those, like you're talking about how you thought differently than other people, how I worked this out, this becomes very important. So tell us about your current work. Well, the, my current work that I do, and I'm actually writing another book right now. It's taking me forever. But uh, I started exploring deeper into myself that even in the cells, that there had to be templates. You, you know, so here is a, a liver cell or a heart, you know, heart cells that make up the heart, that there had to be something even more. So I have worked with people that have had stage four cancer, were told they were going to die, and they're not. They're still alive. But I thought, could there be, and that's what I'm writing on this new book, could there be some sort of a template or a programming, even in our DNA, that we are not aware of? So I had my DNA tested not by 23andMe, and I'm, I'm not going to share the results of it, but it was quite shocking to my doctor. And so I know that this is years and years ago that has viable now. I went to a quantum physicist symposium. I was not a quantum physicist, obviously. And I had proposed to one of the physicists after the conference that if we get more conscious, not just aware, but fully conscious about something, could we change our DNA? And he said, that is so funny, Sherry. He said, I'm at a new conference now, and there was a Russian physicist, and this is almost 20 years ago, actually proposed the same thing. And so in some of my own personal testing that I've done through the medical model, not 23andMe, but the med model, that there has been a significant change. And so I do believe that we have a template or a formula within our body, because we're told if you're family has this or the grandparents are going back to Adam and Eve, whenever. I do believe that we can make changes or shifts clearly, no booga booga, no, but clearly in our own body. And so awareness is only a part, but the consciousness is the full Monty. And so now in my, um, practice or whatever you would like to call it. I don't really like that word, but in what I'm doing with clients now is really assisting them 
to make even a deeper connection and the answers that pour out, I am just thrilled about it. And so they are too. It's giving them the explanation. And so one thing is in wordology is the word ion means cellular. So explanation, their body is giving them the explanation and their body physical from the inside out, their biology, even their anatomy has begun to change because we get the tests, <laughs> you know, get the blood tests, get whatever it is that we can do, your MRIs, your CT scans, and see what it is because they are getting into the coding of their intelligence. Oh, I love that. I love hearing that from you because just something I don't talk about very often, but according to the medical model, I should not be here by now. And uh, it seems it's working, you know. <laughs> it seems that um, our views of whether I should be here or not are completely different. And I know it's because I think differently. So I want everybody to know that you can get a great gift from Sherry Anshara. And you can get it. It's an ebook called Getting Your Answers in 10 Minutes. And she'll give you also a free 10-minute consultation. Now, that's valuable. And after what you've heard her say, I'm sure she's going to pique your interest. So go to her website, SherryAnshara.com. And that's S-H-E-R-R-Y-A-N-S-H-A-R-A.com. SherryAnshara.com. It's in the show notes. You can find that. You can find the link to her gift there as well. So thank you so much for being my guest and providing these insights, Sherry. And thank you so much. I feel, without getting silly here, but I feel like a connection because you don't get it. You have it. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> it does. Because people are saying, I got to get it, I got to get it. You don't, but you articulate it. You say it, you speak it, and you are being what it is that you know is the truth, which is different than truth. It is the truth. So I thank you. I am so grateful to be a guest on your show and, fair, and feel very privileged in gratitude. Thank you. So remember that URL, sherryandshara.com, S-H-E-R-R-Y-A-N-S-H. ARA.com. Get your free gift. If you'd like to talk to me, you can come to transformingrelationship.com. And uh, if you're ready to talk to me directly, uh, I do offer a new client introductory session for only $97. You can go directly to it by going to beaclient.com. Go over and listen to my other podcasts, Save Your Sanity, Help for Toxic Relationships. You'll find it on my website and also my YouTube channel for F-O-R Relationship Help, H-E-L-P. So much for you that'll help you get some insights and get going on how you can change your life with more emotional savvy. So glad you were here with me. Until we're together again, treat yourself really well because you matter and you are precious. Take care. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights, some ideas and strategies to help you gain clarity and confidence for moving forward toward greater emotional health and safety. You deserve that and so do your children. 
If you found value here and would like to support this podcast with a dollar or five each month, please do so at patreon.com slash saveyoursanity. Learn more about how to work with me via video conference, join my optimized circles, or subscribe to this podcast on my YouTube channel at my website, transformingrelationship.com. Talk soon.